theyeshiva.net. We're going to discuss, Be'ezer Hashem, one of the most famous stories of Tisha B'Av, but yet tried to go one layer deeper, explore a deeper layer in the story. The story is recorded in Gemara Maseches Gitten, Daf Nun Vav, page 56. It's a long story, very well familiar, very familiar, but let me remind you the main points of the story. The year, according to most historians, is 66. 66 after the Common Era. Roman oppression has reached critical heights. The Jewish people living in Judea, in Yerushalayim and in Eretz Yisrael, are at the mercy of the Romans, and a debate breaks out. It's a fierce debate. There's many groups of Jews, but at least two. One group says, we have to fight. Let's fight them. Let's do whatever, anything we can to revolt against them and eliminate Roman rule. Another group says, it's pointless. We don't have the troops. We don't have the manpower. We don't have the weapons. We don't have the resources. It's going to be a cruel end. And therefore, we have no other choice but to somehow try to come to terms with the Romans as difficult, as painful, as impossible as it is. The Romans lay siege on Yerushalayim, and now the debate reaches a whole new level. What do you do? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is the leader, he is the Nasi, he is the president of the Sanhedrin, which is, of course, the most important spiritual body of leadership of the Jewish people. And his opinion is that the Jewish people at this point can't fight the Romans. They simply won't be successful. And therefore, they have no choice but to talk to the Romans. And the debate is going on. How do you deal with this siege? But it comes to an end. By that group, Gemara calls the Biryoinim, or the Sikiriki, or the Zealots, the Kanoyim, who burn the resources, the storages of grain that allowed the Jewish people in Jerusalem to survive with food, and now there's no food, there's a kafna, there's a hunger, there's a famine. Thus forcing the Jewish people, basically they can't just remain here and survive, because they can't remain here, forcing them to take a stand. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai sees the situation, and he wants to do whatever he can, so he decides that he's going to sneak out of Yerushalayim and talk to the Romans. But they don't let anybody leave Jerusalem. So what does he do? There's the famous story the Gemara says, he feigns himself as a dead person. He's not alive. You can't bury him inside, so he has to be carried out in a coffin. He's carried out by two of his students, Rabbi Eliezer, also known as Rabbi Eliezer Hagadl, or Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus, one of the greatest pupils of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and his second student, Rabbi Eliezer's colleague, Rabbi Yehoshua. They get him out. It was not easy to get him out because they wanted to stab the coffin to ascertain that there's nobody living inside. But they get out Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He comes out of the coffin and he meets Aspas Yonas. 
he meets Vespasian. In Gemara, he's called Aspasianus. Vespasian at the time is not the Caesar of Rome, he's the general. The emperor of Rome is Nero, Nero. But Vespasian has been dispatched to lay siege on Jerusalem. Rabbi Yochanan ibn Zakkai says, Shlama Alecha Malka. It's an honor to meet the king, the emperor, the Caesar, the Caesar. And as Vespasian tells him, what you just did is treason. You could be reported and executed for it, for two reasons. You called me the king. I'm not the king, I'm the general. And number two, Imalkano, if I'm the king, Amai Loyosis Legaboy Adhashta. If I'm really the king, why didn't you come till today? And Rabbi Yechida ben Zakeh then famously told him, now you're not the king, but soon you will be. And I couldn't come to you till now because of the zealots who don't let anybody out of Jerusalem. And sure enough, message comes from Rome that Nero has died. And the Senate has decided that Vespasian should be taken back to Rome and become the new emperor, which is what happens. And his son Titus Titus is dispatched as the new general to lay siege and decimate Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, and the Holy Temple, the Beis HaMikdash. After a conversation that the Gemara records, that everybody could look up, Vespasian is so impressed, he is so taken by Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he tells him these words, says Vespasian, quote from the Gemara, Ask of me something, that I will give it to you, I'll grant you your wish. Rabbi Yochanan now has a moment with the most powerful person in the world, the new emperor of Rome, to get what he wants. He says, whatever you want, I'll give you. So if you were Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and you were standing there, what would you ask for? Think for a moment, what would you ask for? Now I know nobody hears Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and nobody's standing in front of Vespasian. History doesn't prepare somebody for this moment. You don't get training for such a moment. What do you want? So Rabbi Yechonah ben Zakkai asks not for one thing, but for three things. Please spare me Yavna and its sages. What does that mean? He asks of him that in this whole destruction, he should allow Yavna, a city which is approximately 29 miles from Jerusalem, a coastal city, seven kilometers from the from the Mediterranean, he should spare Yavna. He should let go of Yavna, V'chachamah, and its sages. The second thing is, Shushilta de Rem Gamliel. The dynasty of Rem Gamliel, Rem Gamliel, was alive. Rem Gamliel had his dynasty, as Rashi says, to David HaMelech, spear the dynasty of Rem Gamliel. The third thing is, Asvasa de Masyan Leila Reb Reb Tzaddik was fasting 40 years already, every day, because of the pending destruction. The point, to the point that he was so emaciated, as the Gemara says, his body was transparent. You could see what's happening inside his body. That's how thin he was. He asks for a doctor to heal Reb Tzaddik. Not all of the Chachamim agreed with Rabbi Yechina ben Zakkai. The Gemara says that Rabbi Yosef and others say Rabbi Akiva were upset at Rabbi Yechina ben Zakkai. They applied to him the Pasuk, Meshiv Chachamim Acher. Sometimes Hashem sets the mindset of sages backwards. Rabbi Yechonim and Zakkai felt that this is what he can get. 
They said, why didn't you ask for Yerushalayim? Why didn't he ask for the Beis Hamikdash? You have a moment of grace. Tell him to go back home to Rome. Rabbi Yechina ben Zakei felt that would just not happen. He'll just throw him out. So he asked for this. But what I want to ask you today is, is there a connection between these three things? It almost seems like random. Ten By the way, the dynasty of Ram Gamal, if I'm already asking, I need a doctor for Rabbi Tzaddik. What was behind Rabbi Yechina's mind? What was Rabbi Yechina ben Zakei thinking? Now we can't know. He didn't tell us. This is what we know. But we could think about it. We can speculate. We can try to understand at least a little bit what Rabbi Yechina ben Zakei had in mind when he asked these three things. And he got these three things. Yavna was speared. Rabbi Tzadda got his doctor. And the dynasty of Rabbi Gamliel indeed was speared. The grave of Rabbi Gamliel is not far from Yavna. Indeed, the Sanhedrin was relocated from Yerushalayim to Yavna, as I said, around 29 miles from Jerusalem, around 45, 47 kilometers from Jerusalem, a coastal city called Yavna. The Sanhedrin moved to Yavna. You could see modern-day Yavna, but you could see here on top the archaeological diggings and excavations of the ancient Yavna, where a few years ago they discovered vibrant Jewish life, but not just Jewish life, halachic life. They saw how the boundaries of Tumah and Tara were maintained, which is going to be very significant for our class. They also found the ancient Beisakvaris of Yavna, where many of the Sanhedrin and the Jews living at the time lived. But for many decades, the, now the center of Jewish spiritual life, of Torah life, moved from Yerushalayim to Yavna, where the, new Sanhed- where the Sanhedrin was relocated, and the Romans kept their hands off Yavna as Aspasionis promised Rabbi Yochana ben Zakkai. Here you have exactly the archaeological diggings you could see from close. They found all types of vessels and they found the houses and residences and how they lived and the lifestyle quite in detail, which was a very exciting archaeological discovery just a few years ago. Today, if you go to Yavna, there's even a hill. You go on the hill and you could see sand all the way. You could see the beach. And according to many, that is the place where the Beis HaMedrash, the old yeshiva of Yavna, lived. If we really go into this request of Rabbi Yechid ben Zakkai, we can really discover how he wasn't just throwing out three requests. We can understand that these three requests, from his perspective, were faithful. And they may hold the clue to the big question, one of the biggest questions in history. The question has been asked again and again, and really the question needs to be asked again and again, because as Rabbi Yaakov Emden writes, that the greatest miracle in all of history is this miracle. The answer to the question of how the Jewish people survived. You have to understand, you know, we talk about Tisha B'Av today, but you have to understand a little bit of what happened. What happened at the time of Tisha B'Av was, if you were a student of anthropology, you studied cultures, and you were a fly on the wall watching the events from the year 66 through the year 70, 
66 is when the revolt against the Romans began, and it was crushed either two years later, three years later, four years later. There's an argument of the destruction of the second base Samikdash happened in 68 or 69 or 70, one of those three years. In the Hebrew calendar, it's Gimel Alafim, Tav Tav Chavches, Tav Tav Chavtes, or Tav Tav Lamed. 3,828 since creation, 3,829 or 3,830 since creation, which is 1,952 years ago. 1,952 years ago, when that Tisha B'Av, Jerusalem and the Beis Amikdash went up in flames. If Josephus, Yosefun, Yosef ben Matisio, Josephus Flavius, has his numbers right in his history books, one mil, more than almost one million Jews were massacred. Ninety-seven thousand who remained alive were sold as slaves in Rome and across the Roman Empire. There was such a supply of slaves that the price of a Jewish slave was less than a dollar, a slave for life. Many others murdered, beaten, tortured, murdered in gladiators marched in parades across the Roman Empire to demonstrate the defeat of Judea and the victory of Rome. And 60 years later, Bar Koichva manages to stage a revolt under the leadership of Rabbi Akiva. The Rambam says in Hilchus Malachim, if Rabbi Akiva thought he was Mashiach, the Yerushalmi says, the Rambam quotes it, and the Romans crushed that successful revolt after a few years in 135 murdering another half a million Jews who survived, and outlawing every last vestige of Jewish life in Judea, even changing the name to Palestine. That name change happened through the Romans at that time. They didn't want the name of Judea left. They changed the name of Yerushalayim, Ayala Kapitalana, they changed the name of Eretz Yisrael, Palestine to add insult to injury of the Plishtim, the old Philistines. The practice of Judaism became forbidden. The study of Torah became forbidden. They not only destroyed the Beis Hamikdash, they plowed the whole area, they lowered the mountain, they flattened it. That's why it doesn't look like a mountain. Adrian. So if anyone would look at Jewish life at the moment, you know these are the stories that end the civilization. After this, you can't be resurrected afterwards. You're done. You don't have a land. That's first of all. What does a nation do without a land? (laughs) You don't have a land. You don't have political independence. You don't have military sovereignty. You don't have spiritual sovereignty. You don't have people left. You don't have leadership. Top leaders were massacred, destroyed, tortured and beaten and then killed. So you're left with a situation that much greater empires and civilizations never came back from such a blow. That's the fact. And thus the big question is, how did we survive? What happened? Not only did we survive, but if you ask, where is the Roman Empire? Where is Vespasian? Where is Titus? He's the one who actually burnt the base of Mikdash. When he came back to Rome a few years later, they built. You go to Rome today, you can go to the Shar Titus. You can go to the gate of Titus that they built in his honor. And they engraved pictures of the Jewish slaves being taken back to Rome in shackles and chains, carrying the kalim, the furniture and the vessels of the Beis Hamikdash, And throughout history, where they wanted to insult Jews, they would often bring them to that shire, to that gate, which still exists, 
to insult and humiliate and crush the Jewish spirit, where is Titus? Where is Domitian? He was the next one. Where is Adrian? Where is Caliglia, Pompey, Julius? Where are all the Roman emperors? And put her in already Nebuchadnezzar. Where is Babylon? Where is the Babylonian Empire? You can already put in Pyre and the Persians and the Greeks and the Byzantines. Where are they? Where are they all? And the answer is they're all in Wikipedia. Every one of them. They have an entry. And if you want, you can edit them. You can go on right now. Usually I speak on Shabbos. I say do it after Shabbos. But if you want, you could do it now. And you can edit. You can, you can write the obituary for Vespasian. I don't know if you'll know what to write. You could put an Ayamach Shemai if you want. You can write all their obituaries. And the question is, where are the Jewish people? And the answer is, we created Wikipedia and Google and Facebook and Waze and Instagram and Telegram and other technologies because we like writing their obituaries. Not only that, we don't only like to write their obituaries, we turn them into our favorite foods. For example, we took Haman and we turned him into the best Jewish food that exists. Nishtum Tishabav It's called the Hamantash. We took Antiochus and we turned him into a latka. We took Paroi and we turned him into a matzah ball. A knedel. At least Achron Shal Pesach depends on your custom. We don't only want to write their obituaries, we want our enemies to add to our fat reserve to give us cholesterol. That's why they're all carbs, matzah knedlach, klatkes, hamantashen. We don't, we stick to the carbs, not the proteins or the vegetables. And, but the real question is, how did all of this happen? How did it happen? And you'll notice the three requests of Rabbi Yechonah ben Zakkai. He was criticized. But those three requests of Rabbi Yechonah ben Zakkai contained the secret of Jewish survival, the secret of Jewish history. In order to appreciate this, I want to change the subject completely and go to another story. This story is a Mesechus Brachas, Davchav Chesam at The Gemara tells a story that Yochanan ben Zakkai fell ill. His students came to visit him. He started to weep. They said, why are you crying? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, after a person passes away, there are two paths that he or she can go down. There's a path that leads to Gan Eden, to paradise, and a path that leads to Gehenim, to purgatory. I don't know which path I am going to be led down. And that's why he's crying. That's what Rabbi Yechon told his students. The commentators struggle with the question. Rabbi Yechon ben Zakkai really felt that he may be going to Gehenna, he may be going to Purgatory. The Gemara says about Rabbi Yechon ben Zakkai, he lived 120 years. 40 years, he learned. 40 years, he taught. 40 years, he mentored the Jewish people, Pirnes Yisrael. If he's not in Gan Eden, who is in Gan Eden? He really felt that he may be going to Purgatory. The Gemara then continues... Moments before he died, he told his students, Panu Take out the vessels in the house, because soon he's going to pass away, and if there's a corpse in the house, everything under the roof becomes tame, so take them out. It's going to be a hard process to cleanse. You have to have the red heifer, the ashes, the water, the mikvah, seven days. Take out the kalim. The second thing, Panu Prepare a cheer, 
Zechizkiah, one of the last kings of Judea. He passed away to Be'echel ben Zaka. Chizkiah lived 700 years before the Be'echel ben Zaka. Chizkiah lives before the destruction of the first Beis Amigdash. What does it mean? Make a space for Chizkiah. Why Chizkiah from all people? Why not David HaMelech? Why not Shleim HaMelech? Why not Moshe Rabbeinu? Why not Avram Avinu? Why not his own Rebbe? Rabbi Yechina ben Zakeh was a student of Hillel. Hillel Azakin. Hillel the Elder. From all people, Chizkiah Melech Yehud. Okay. I said the Sanhedrin was relocated from Yerushalayim to Yavna. Yavna became the new spiritual epicenter of the Jewish people. Yavna became the seat of spiritual leadership, the seat of the main yeshiva, the academy, the base medrash, where people, students, whoever wanted, went to learn Torah seriously. One of the most famous stories that happens in Yavna is recorded in Meseches Baba Metziah, Tafnun Tes, Ahmed Aleph and Ahmed Beis. 59a and b and this is the story i want to share with you now it's the story about an oven and somehow this oven triggered such fierce debate that it seems like everything came almost crashing down around an oven it's funny what an oven in the right context can do the oven became so famous or infamous they gave it a name Tanur Shel Achnoi. Achnoi, according to Toisvis, is the person who owned the oven. Or according to Rashi, Achnoi is the name of a snake. The Tanur, the oven, became associated with a snake. We'll soon see why. What was the uniqueness about this oven? Zau Tanur Shel Achnoi. My Achnoi. Om Rabbi Yehuda, Marshmul, Sheikifua, Dvarim, Ka'achnazu, Vitim Uhu. This oven became engulfed and encompassed with so many words and debates like a snake. A snake coiling around a vessel or around an animal. This oven became so engulfed with words, with debates. They called it the snake's oven. Vitimu, they turned the oven into something impure. Tona, we learnt. On that day, Rabbi Eliezer tried to prove every proof in the world that the oven was pure. They did not accept it. They decided that the oven was tummy. The oven was impure. Rabbi Eliezer, who we now know as a student of Rabbi Yechina ben Zakeh, in fact, he's one of the two people who carried the coffin out of Jerusalem to meet Vespasian, to have a meet Vespasian, Aspasianus. Rabbi Eliezer says, it's pure. The rest of the sages say, it's impure. This is Yavna. What happened? What type of oven was this? The Gemara says, Tanur What happened here? What's the issue? So the issue is, Rashi discusses this, Taisviz discusses it, we have it in Meseches Brachas. The issue is, so here you have a classic oven, a Tanur, from that time. This is an oven that's known as a tanner of cheres. It's made of earthenware. It's a clay oven. Clay. What is it made of? Like all clay cheres earthenware, you take earth, you mix it with water, you put in some straw, you have a potter who molds it, and you bake it in the furnace, 
or you bake it in the sun. That's how they made bowls and plates and cups and barrels. And if you ever learn Mishnayis and Gemara, clay cheres occupies a major important role in halacha because earthenware vessels, as the Pasuk says in Shmini, are susceptible to tumah. If a source of impurity falls into the space and the cavity of an earthenware vessel, let's say a barrel or a cup or a bowl, it's tummy. If there's a dead corpse in a, in a, in a house, the clay cheres is tummy. If a sheret, say a dead uh, weasel, is suspended into the cavity of the clay cheres into the bowl, it becomes tummy. And clay cheres, unlike metal vessels, gold, silver, iron, metal, unlike you cannot put it into the mikveh to purify it. It's too porous, as the Pasuk says, Tanur v'chirayim yusatz. You have to break it. You have to take the earthenware vessel and splinter it into shards. Once it breaks, it's not a vessel anymore. Now it's pure. You can put it back together. Bring it back together, bake it again, and you're good. But you can't just put it into a mikveh and it becomes pure. So this is what an oven looked like. Obviously, they connected it to the ground, but it was a vessel, and you could see they put coal or wood, firewood on the bottom or whatever substance they used to create the heat. And they used to put bread usually attached to the walls of the oven, to the walls of the klecheres, and it would bake. And this was the tanner, the classic tanner that they had. Different forms, different shapes. You know, you have a kupach, you have a tanner, you have kirayim, but this is generally. Now, what happened here? So what's the problem? Problem here is this was a unique oven. What happened to this oven? You had this cylindrical oven, and it's been smashed. It's been smashed, but it wasn't just smashed into pieces without symmetry. Every part of the oven, it wasn't just smashed randomly into shards. It was precisely cut into parallel cylindrical slabs. As Chazal say, anyway, So you had now parts of the oven, you see here, but each one on its own is nothing. What did they do? They put it back together, but they connected it through choil. They put sand. Between each part, between each cylindrical slab of the oven, they put sand, and that's how they connected the oven. This was the oven called the snake-like oven. One reason why it was called a snake-like oven, it almost looks like the snake. Every layer of it was like a snake surrounding it. So there wasn't one cohesive oven. This was an oven that was brought together from sand. Now sand is not makabal if you take sand and you turn it into a vessel, you don't bake it, it's called clay adama. It's not makabal tumah, it's not susceptible to tumah. It's like stone, it's like vessels they made out of dung, clay avonim, clay glolim, clay adama. So the question is, what's the status of this oven? The oven was broken, it became pure, but now it was put back together with sand connecting the slabs, the layers of the oven. Rabbi Leza said, this is no vessel. This is pure, this remains pure. Aye, it looks like an oven, it functions like an oven, you know it's fake, look at it. It's just sand in between. You take out the sand, there's no oven here. Sand is not makabal tumah, this is a broken oven. Artificially you put it together. The Chachamim said, sorry, sorry, this is clay cheres, this is an earthenware vessel. It's true, the sand connects it in between, but the sand connects the earthenware pieces and therefore... It is an oven. It becomes impure. 
No, if this would have been a theoretical debate, no. The problem is a dead Sheretz fell into it. No. They came to ask Rebbe Eliezer. He said, no problem. This is a broken oven. So later they wanted to bake bread. It was bread of truma. It was sacred bread. Oy gewalt. They had all this holy bread baked in this oven. According to Rebbe Eliezer, it was all good. According to the other sages, you couldn't eat any of it. It's all tummy, it's all impure. Because this tanner was a tummy dikataner. This is what happened. Okay. I guess this is the way somebody else decided the picture should be. You could see this oven, a big oven. It's connected by sand. Layers of sand connect each row of the oven. This is the Tanur Shel Achnoi. I guess another image, even though I think the earlier image sounds more like it. What happens now? There's a huge debate. This is a picture from 1870. I couldn't get a picture from 110 CE. It wasn't available even on Google, but I got from 1870. Okay? A huge debate breaks out. Here's another one. Osa 1870. You get the point. What happens? Let's see. Omar Lahem, the second paragraph. Omar Lahem, Rabbi Eliezer says to his friends, Im halacha kemoisi, chruv ze yoichiach. If the law follows me, let this carob tree, charuv is boxer, a carob tree. Right near the yeshiva, they had a carob tree. Let this carob tree demonstrate that I'm right. The carob tree uprooted itself from its own place and it moved away 100 cubits, which would be between 150 and 200 feet. Others say 400 cubits, which would be approximately 650 or 800, between almost 800 feet. Amruloi, you would think they would be like, wow, OMG. We're not starting up with this man. The oven is pure. Amruloi, they say, No, we don't bring proofs from carob trees to ascertain the halacha of ovens. He says to them, If the law is like me, let the aqueduct of water, let the stream, the canal of water prove it. So what happens is, the aqueduct of water, there's a canal of water, a stream of water, it's flowing in a certain direction, it starts flowing backwards in the opposite direction. You would think at now, at this point, they would be impressed. We don't bring proofs from the water aqueduct. Rabbi Eliezer says to them, If the halacha is like me, let the walls of the Beis Medrash prove it. The walls of the Beis Medrash began to cave in on them. They began to tilt as they're sitting. Now what would you do at such a poor moment? After the carob tree is gone, the water aqueduct is going in the wrong direction, and now the walls are starting to fall. What would anybody here do? Huh? 911, Chavedim, what? 
Mesaskim, Shoimrim, Mezamrim, run home. Hatzala. You would run home, right? Gar behem Rabbi Yeshua. Yeshua was a friend of Rabbi Eliezer. Remember, he took out the coffin with him. They were buddies, they were colleagues. Rabbi Yeshua started to talk to the walls. That's the expression, talk to the walls. He started to scream at the walls. You don't talk to walls, you scream at them. Amalahem, and he says to the walls, Im Talmidei Chachamim Enatzchim Zeb Zeb Ha'alacha, Atemativchem. Talmidei Chachamim, Torah scholars, are debating each other in Jewish law. Why are you mixing in? What are you getting involved for walls? Loi Naflum Im Pnekvoidosh Rabbi Yeshua. The walls did not fall down completely in the honor of Rabbi Yeshua. They did not go back and stand erect for the glory of Rabbi Eliezer. And the Gemara adds three words, and they're still tilted. It's a very interesting comment. When was Gemara written? The Gemara, this happens in the first century after the common era. The Churbun was in the year 70. This happens a few decades after, maybe the beginning of the second century after the Common Era. This is the generation of the Tanoim after the Churban. Yadrim Gamliel, Yadrim Yechina Bedzakai, Yadrim Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer's student, of course, was Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was Rabbi Eliezer's prime student. Rabbi Yeshua. This is all after the Churban. The Gemara was written a few centuries later. The Gemara was conce- completed in the fifth century after the Common Era. So what's Vadayan Matin Vaimdin? The walls in Yavna are still tilted till today. You would think at this point, somebody would calm down the situation and say, Chevra, it's time for dinner. Rabbi Yeshua said, Rabbi Lezer says, If the Allah is like me, you know what? Let heaven prove it. A voice from heaven comes out and says, what are you doing arguing with Rabbi Eliezer when we all know that the halacha is like him always, everywhere? What are you arguing with him? Of course the oven is pure. Ahmad Rabbi Yeshua Raglov. You would think the carob tree didn't convince them. The water stream didn't convince them. The walls didn't convince them. But maybe God could convince them, no? It's a baskel. Maybe the Rabbi Nishalaylam has some say, no? Not so poshit. Ahmad Rabbi Yeshua Raglov. Rabbi Yeshua stood up on his feet. Till now he was sitting. This at least managed to get him up. <laughs> you see, nobody got too excited. At this point, he gets up. V'yamar and he says, There's a posik in Sefer Dvor and Perik Lamed. Parshas Nitzavim. Loi ba shamayim he. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Torah is not in heaven. My loi ba shamayim he. What does it mean? It's not in heaven. What does it mean? It's not in heaven. Once you gave the Torah from Mount Sinai, a voice that comes from heaven will not replace Torah. In the Torah it says in Parshus Mishpatim, follow the majority when there is a debate. There is a debate here between the sages of the Sanhedrin. Rebbe Eliezer is a minority, one voice. He says it's pure. The majority says it's impure. You told us, a voice from heaven can't replace Torah. It's not in heaven anymore. The jurisdiction is on earth. The majority says the oven is impure. 
Rabbi Yeshua rejects the heavenly voice and says, the oven is impure. The Gemara wants to make sure we get the story. So the Gemara says, Ashkechei Reb Nosen Reb Nosen met Eliyahu Anavi. He met Elijah the prophet. He asked him, what was Hashem doing at that moment when Rabbi Yeshua rejected the heavenly voice? Hashem was laughing, smiling, quelling, and stating, My children have triumphed over me. My children have defeated me. Nitzchuni from the word Nitzachain, Netzach. They have won. They have been victorious over me. Nitzchuni bonai, Nitzchuni bonai. That's the end at least of this part of the story. Now I want to ask you a question. Okay. They're not impressed by the miracles. Fine. But the Baskal, who made that Baskal? Did they think it was a, some Disney World production? No. It was a baskel from heaven. In other words, Hashem said an opinion. So I don't understand. Isn't all of halacha, isn't all of law to ascertain what the will of Hashem is? So you're arguing now with a heavenly voice. Hashem says, this is the law. And you're like, what do you know, what do you, what do you know about the law? What, what does this mean? How do we understand this? So you could say, heaven can't intervene. But I don't understand. Why can't heaven intervene? Because Torah is decided here. So why does heaven say, Halacha is like him. Halacha is not like him. So Hashem thinks Halacha is like him. We decided Halacha is not like him. So now there's an argument. Very hard to understand. Some commentators say halacha k'moyse bechol Not necessarily here. The Sefer Achinuch Mitzvah Tov Tzadik Vav says something fascinating. He says that this is how the system of Torah works. Just to give a simple example to understand the Sefer Achinuch. If you're a doctor in a hospital and there's a debate about a certain patient and all of the doctors, they take it to a vote and all the doctors feel you shouldn't do a procedure and you're alone and you feel you should do a procedure and you know you're right, but you may respect the fact that everybody follows the majority because you know that in the future, the one opinion may be wrong, and this is the best system. So the Hashem says, maybe the halacha here was like Rabbi Eliezer. But in every single situation, you're going to have one person arguing it. Maybe he's right. The best system is, which in most cases is going to be right. That's the Sefer HaChinuch's perspective. Reb Nisim Goyen and the Ben Ishchai give another perspective and a very fascinating one. And they say this was exactly the point. Throughout history, people will come and they might make miracles. You might even hear voices from heaven. You have to know that you have a precedent for this. And Sefer Dvorim Parshas Rei Moshe Rabbeinu says, there may be a prophet who may, be do miracle, may do miracles. And then the prophet will go tell you to go engage in idolatry. You shouldn't listen to him. Why? He's making miracles. So the Rambam and Hilchis Yisraeli explains in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, famous Rambam, 
that the basis of the authenticity of Torah is Maimed Har Sinai. And Maimed Har Sinai, every, Sinai, every Jew was there. When a prophet comes and makes miracles, the reason we listen to a prophet is not because we know for sure the prophet is saying truth. The Ramam says sometimes not. But because Moshe Rabbeinu said that if he has this criteria, you should listen to him. Why do we believe Moshe Rabbeinu? Because Maimed Har Sinai, every single Jew saw the revelation there. If the prophet is coming to undermine what happened at Maimed Har Sinai, then he lost his whole authority. So the same is true here. He was giving them a precedent. Jewish history is going to be long. There's going to be many opinions. Even in their generation, there was somebody a few years before who came and supposedly did a lot of miracles, and he changed the Jewish religion. He says he hears voices. And what if he does hear voices? And carob trees move, and streams of water move, and walls fall. This was the precedent. I could say, but my Midhar Sinai remains the truth, the parameter of what is true and what is not true. And my Midhar Sinai, when Moshe was appointed, he gave them the Torah and he told them the Pasuk, there's a mechanism of how to determine what Halacha says in a particular issue where there is a debate. Of course, you have to have it debated by the sages of Sanhedrin who have the criteria of absolute mastery and adherence to Torah and fear of heaven. And when there is such a debate, you follow the majority, and that is exactly what the creator of the world wanted. And all the miracles cannot and should not change that, even not a baskal, even not a voice. And this is when they ascertained it, and it secured the integrity of Yiddishkeit and halacha until this very day. question I want to raise today is, what are these three miracles? A carob tree moving, an aqueduct of water streaming the wrong direction, walls falling. What, what is the meaning of that? Is it just Rebbe is like, we're going to take out all the tricks from the bag? What is the meaning of this? So you read it, it's interesting. Well, why? Furthermore, the Shittim Kobetzis quotes Rabbeinu Hananel that this story was a dream. It didn't happen in physical reality. It was a dream. The Shittim Kobetzis quotes Rabbeinu Hananel. Now you have to even understand that means the dream is truly significant. What is the dream trying to convey? Not everybody agrees. Some people say this wasn't a dream. This is exactly how it happened in physical, the physical world. But either this interpretation or another interpretation, what is the meaning of this? If you look in the Koyla Leo, the Vilna Gon, the Vilna Gon says something fascinating and he says, success in Torah comes with three qualities. Quality number one, he stopkus bemuet, anove, and dveikus belimut. The first quality for success in learning is, I cannot be immersed and indulgent in materialism. It just doesn't go together. You have to fine-tune your mind and your heart to the wisdom of Torah. If I am a glutton, I become more crude. I desensitize my body, my soul, my brain to Torah wisdom. The second thing is humility. If I have a vestige of arrogance, narcissism, Torah won't work. The basis of Torah is humility. Openness to truth, infinity. The third quality is openness to debate, another opinion. Rebbe Lezer says, in all three, I have excelled. First of all, the carob tree. The Gemara says about Rebchanina ben Doisa, yeah, the whole world gets sustained by him, and he eats... He's fine with a kav charuvin mishabbos l'shabbos, with a little volume of caribs, 
You ever ate carobs, Chavra Boxer? It's not exactly the epitome of indulgence, Emma's. You didn't ask your wife tonight to prepare Boxer for after Tisha B'Av. Yeah, for your daughter's wedding, you don't ask the caterer, Viennese table from a carob tree. It's good for Reb Shimon ben Yechai in the cave for 13 years, a carob tree. That was his point. Rebbe Eliezer was a master of a person who was completely refined. Number two, Mayim, the Gemara says, water always searches for the lowest surface. Ain Mayim Elatayra, humility. Number three, I live in the base Hamedrish, the place of different opinions, where things become clear through different opinions. Nebuchadnezzar says, I have mastered all these three things par excellence. That was the symbol of these three elements. You can accept my opinion. In other words, Rebelezer's power of Torah was unparalleled, unprecedented on all three levels. And still they said, we get it. But the majority disagrees, Rebelezer. The Maral of Prague puts it a little differently. And he says, Torah's, this success in Torah happens through three things. The first is tradition. Tradition. The second is clarity of thought. And the third is talking to people. The chruv, the carob tree, the Gemara says in Tainus, to produce fruit sometimes takes 70 years. That means you have to go from generation to generation. It represents the power of tradition. Water, ein mayim elatayda, represents clarity, crystal clear, refined thought. And the walls of the Beis HaMedrash are again the place of conversation and debate. I excelled in all three, the Maral of Praxis. There's other commentators. But today, let's suggest another dimension, or another two dimensions. And I want to mention a colleague of mine, Rabbi David, David Foreman, from the Five Towns Alpha Beta, who gave a splendid series of lectures on this, <clears throat> which I'm using here as well. Perhaps there is something much more profound going on right here. These three signs are not just random, they're extremely meaningful. We spoke about this oven. This oven the Gemara describes as chulios. They put choil, sand, between chulia and chulia. Chulia is the slab, the layer of an oven, but really the word chulia in Hebrew means something else. What does it mean? It means vertebrae. Vertebrae. Why are they calling it chulia? And the answer is, look at the spine of a person. The chuta shedra of a person is a spine. And as Gechazal say, it's made up of the chuliois. Chuliois are the vertebrae. In fact, the 18 brachas of Shemayna Esra, Chazal say, are because of the Yudches Chulios, the 18 vertebrae in the person. This oven was not any more cohesive. It was vertebrae, literally vertebrae. And it got shattered, it got broken. Imagine a skeleton, and you're looking at a vertebrae that's shattered, and now you've got to put it back together. So you take sand... And you put it in between the vertebrae. Chulia lechulia. That's exactly the words that Chazal used to describe this Tanur Achnoi in Gemara Brachas, which the Rishonim Rashi Toysos bring right here in this sugya. Rebbe Leza says, you did nothing. It's a shattered oven. It's pure. It's 
broken, it's pure, it's nothing, it's not an oven. Maybe quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, it's not a duck. Looks like an oven, bakes like an oven, it's not an oven, it's broken. You give a kick to the sand, it's all over. Chachamim say it's an oven. In, in English it doesn't work, but the word choil and chulia, of course, are connected, right? Choil means sand. Choil is chesvav lamed, connected to the word chulia, which is vertebrae. Sand is a grain of sand. A grain of sand, if somebody takes a vertebrae, chas v'sholem, shatters it and grinds it into little, little powder, you have like grains of vertebrae, it's like grains of sand. Choil is a tiny grain of sand, it's called choil. All the sand together on the beach. One grain of sand on its own is not a lot. But you bring together all the sand, all the grains of sand together on the yam, it's a lot. And here they take the sand, the the grains of sand, and they connect the vertebrae, the vertebrae of the ovens with it. So tiny grains of some crushed substance becomes choil. It's like if you could crush those vertebrae and turn it into choil, use that fine powder to somehow put it all back together again. That's the story. Now, is it a coincidence that this oven ignited such debate? You might say, yeah. Punk, this oven had the mazel that it became a huge machlaikas. And by the way, at the end of this, Rabbi Eliezer gets excommunicated. Rabbi Eliezer disagrees with them. He does not acquiesce. He does not submit. He does not surrender. And the greatest of the sages, Rabbi Eliezer, who Rabbi Yeshua kissed the stone on which he sat in Yavna, and he said, he said, this stone is basically Har Sinai. Rabbi Eliezer sat on it. This is the place where Torah was given. Rabbi Eliezer didn't submit at the end. Is it just a coincidence that there was an oven and they baked holy food and they had to burn the food and a huge debate ignited or there's maybe more to the story? Where did this debate happen? Yavna. Yavna is just a few kilometers from the ocean. You could go to Yavna today and you could see it. I was in Yavna. You could stand on the little hill in Yavna. Archaeologists say that was the place where the Beis Medrash, where the yeshiva of Rem Gamliel, of Rabbi Yechina ben Zakkai, of Rabbi Eliezer stood. That place where the Sanhedrin came back together. And if you look from the top of that hill and you gaze towards the south, Coming towards you, what do you see? Anybody here was Yavna and Yavna? And the answer is, you will see sand everywhere. You will see choil, just, they even call it choil. Cholot Yavna, the sands of Yavna. You have uh, dunes of, 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 of earth, of sand, stretching down all the way down from Ashkelon all the way up to Yavna kilometers after kilometers, miles of sand dunes. That's physically. But let's now take this one step further. 
What do we say, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Nisana Toike, if you remember? Adam, Yesoidai Meyafar. Vesoifai, Laafar. Marshal, you remember? Kecheres Hanishbar. Adam originates in earth. Adam ends in earth. Afar ato el afar toshuf. Vayitzar Hashem alekim es ha-adam afar min ha-adama. But man is not just earth. Vayipach ba'apov nishmas chayim. Vayi adam l'nefesh chaya. It's earth that came to life. It's earth that was baked in the fire of a soul of divine energy. Mashul kecheres hanishbar. Person is often compared to cheres, to shards of an earthenware vessel. That's individual Adam. What about the collective body of Adam? The first Adam included all the souls. Isn't the story of the oven not just a story of an oven? It's a story of a people. If the chulia, the vertebrae, if each slab, if each cylindrical slab of the oven is a vertebrae, one after another, after another, after another, you have the spine, you have the skeleton, you have the binyan, the roiv binyan, the shedra, the chuta shedra of the human being and of Knesset Yisrael, and it's filled with warmth and fire and life and heat, it has a soul, and then one day the oven gets shattered. Kecheres hanishbar. It gets broken. It's devastated. It doesn't seem that there's anything left from it. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who knows that the end is near, comes to Vespasian and he says, What was Yavne, if not essentially, trying to put back this oven together? Trying to take this Cheres Hanishbar and turning it into a full vessel that's productive, that's meaningful, that's useful, that has a significant reality, using the chayl, using sand, the sands of Yavna, and using little grains of sand that don't seem very significant to put the layers back together. At the end of Masechus Brachas, Chazal called the yeshiva in Yavna, Kerem B'Yavna. Right? The vineyard of Yavna. The Gemara then the Brachas, Samach Gimel describes when they came to the Kerem B'Yavna, what they said, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Le. It's funny because, literally, why is it called a vineyard? So Rashi says, because the sages were sitting rows in organized rows like a vineyard, vine after a vine after a vine in rows. On a physical level, if you go to Yavna, there's no vineyards. You can't plant vineyards. There's sand everywhere. You can't make a vineyard there. You plant in the sand, and a wind comes, and it's gone with the wind. You can't plant there. There's no vineyards there. It's one of the most infertile places imaginable from a geological, from a botanic point of view. But what is true botanically is true spiritually. And yet they created a place called the Vineyard of Yavna. On the sands of Yavna they made a vineyard blossom.
And here was the big question. Is it successful? Is this a real oven? Is this a real keli? Is this a vessel that could become impure because it's a true vessel? It's not just a broken piece. Rebelezer said it's not. It's not a real vessel. The Chacham said it is a real vessel. What are the bases of civilization? What makes a civilization civilized? You say here is a civilization that's successful. What is civilization? How do you answer that question? Civilization requires three things. Three levels. The carob tree. The aqueduct of water. And the walls of the Beis HaMedrash. The first basic element of civilization is that which is naturally there for the taking. Imagine the old hunters, the old foragers, gatherers. They just live by what is. So you have caribs growing. That's a source of nutrients. If you have grapes growing, noch besser. The first layer that makes civilization is we rely and we're nurtured and we're sustained by that which exists due to nature. That's the carob tree. There's the second layer to civilization. We come and we use our brains and we build tools to advance our life quality, to lengthen our lifespan, to give us more of the resources that we would like to make and to have. We build hammers, we build knives, we build swords, we build canals, we build aqueducts. I need more water, so I channel the water. This is the exploitive successful of the human the success of the human brain to advance civilization. And it's a higher state. I'm not just relying like the gorilla or the reptile or the other mammal or the rodent or the reptile, the fish or the bird or the mammal on what is, but human brain develops tools to further what is. And then civilization reaches yet a deeper level. And that is when I can take what is and I can take my tools and I can begin to fashion institutions that become places in which my dreams are facilitated, our values, our priorities. Those are the basics of community of civilization. Rebeliezer comes and says, Look at the Jewish people and you'll see none of this exists anymore. The carob tree has been uprooted. The aqueduct of water is going in the opposite direction. The walls of the base medrash, when humanity comes together to build ideas, dreams, institutions, homes, families, communities, yeshivas, libraries, centers of academia, of learning, of study, it's all gone. We don't have our natural resources. We don't have independence. We don't have creativity. Yes, the oven was put together with sand, but it's not a real oven. It's a cheres hanishbar, and therefore, halachically also, it's not susceptible to tumah, because something that's broken can't become impure, because there's nothing to impurify. It's just broken. It doesn't have value. For something to become impure, it has to have value. The sages disagreed. Abelezer says, ask God. Let's hear what God says. And a voice says, of course Rebeleza is right. Of course Rebeleza is right. When you're looking at history, it's obvious. That you know, we're trying to make some replacements, we're trying to get another couple of years, we're trying to do some nice things, 
But fundamentally, fundamentally, this civilization, sadly and tragically, has come to an end. This is what the laws of nature dictate. And it's at such a moment that we can appreciate, it's at this moment we can appreciate what happens. Rabbi Yeshua stands up and he says, first of all, I'm not impressed with the carib, I'm not impressed by the water, I'm not impressed by the walls. And then he looks at heaven and he says, I want to tell you something. We are creating a new type of civilization. We are creating a new type of reality. We are revolutionizing history. I know heaven has its plan of what civilization looks like. But we have created a lifeboat as the Titanic of Jewish history perhaps has sunk. We created a lifeboat. We created a real oven. Yes, it's made of grains of sand. Yes, it's held together by something that seems so mortal and frail and weak. But I want to tell you, that there's real life here. This is a real oven. This is a real keli. This is of real value. This is of real significance. Don't think that the Jewish people and Judaism have come to an end. Because what's happening in Yavne is that even from a physical point of view, we have nothing. There's no epicenter. There's no land to call ours. We're being persecuted. We're being harassed. We have suffered terribly. We're left literally without leadership, without an infrastructure, physical and spiritual. Nonetheless, in Yavne, we are creating something. What are we creating? It's here that we can go back to Rabbi Yechonim and Zakei and understand what he meant when he said, Tenli Yavne v'chachamel. What was he asking for? Vespasian said yes. Why? Aspasianus was the Roman emperor. He asked himself, what is this old Jew asking for? Basically, sand. He's asking for something that's meaningless. Why shouldn't I give him Yavna? Well, we're going to have a little shtibel there with a couple of people sitting with a few texts and arguing with each other? (laughs) Who cares? Let him have it. What do I care? What was Vespasian really doing? He was really signing his own death certificate. He was signing Rome's death certificate. He couldn't know it. Isn't that the metaphor of Rabbi Yechonim and Zakkai going out of Jerusalem, feigning himself to be a dead man? When you look at the coffin, what do you see? A dead man! What was really inside? A living person. When Vespasian gives Yechonim and Zaka Yavna, what was he giving him? In his mind, he was giving him a coffin. He was giving him sand, something infertile, something non-substantial. So they're going to sit in the houses of Yavna and discuss Zroyim, Moyed, Noshim, Nezikin, Kachim, Tarus. They're going to immerse themselves in the laws of Peya or Shviyas, or Kelayim, or Chala, or Bikurim, or Lechi, or Erevin, or Kaira. The laws of Yom Kippur, the laws of Zvachim, Chulin, Erkin, Tmura, Krisus, the laws of Alois, 
Tumas Oil, the laws of Tumas Kalim, the laws of Tanar Achnoi, the laws of Tumas Paraduma, the laws of Tumas Oiktsuktsin. <laughs> that doesn't count for anything. That's meaningless. Let them do it. Let them train students that way. Rome is the future. Vespasian was very logical. I'm giving him sand. I'm giving him a coffin. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, of course, understood what Vespasian couldn't understand. And that is, the Jewish people, without bringing the sheep every morning and every afternoon to the Beis Hamikdash to offer it, they may survive, they may not survive. But if they stop learning about the two sheep, if they don't learn anymore, Zvachim and Achis Chulin, Hilchis Karbonis, Hilchis Karbon Tmidin Musafin, Laws of Chagigi and the laws of Shgogas, the laws of Yerushalayim and the laws of Trumas and Maestras, the laws of the Beis Hamikdash and the laws of Kachim Kalim and Kachim Kadoshim and Pigul and Noiser and the laws of Koyanim. If they don't learn it, for sure they won't be able to survive. Moments before his death, he started to cry. He said, I don't know, am I going to Ganeden? Am I going to Gehenim? Before a person passes, they say, their whole life flashes by before them in a few moments. And sometimes you've lived a good life, very good life. And you did amazing things. But sometimes there's one moment in a person's life and you don't know if you'll ever be able to forgive yourself for that moment. Rabbi Yechon ibn Zakkai lived an incredible life. But there was one moment he questioned. That moment when he stood in front of the most powerful person in the world, and the man said, tell me what you want and I'll grant it to you. And Rabbi Yechon ibn Zakkai asked for three things. But now, moments before he left his body, he asked himself one question. Did I fail my people? Did I betray my people? Am I ultimate guilt? Am I ultimately guilty for the state of the Jewish people today? Because had I had the courage, had I had the audacity, had I had the guts, I would look him in the eyes and impress upon him to spare us the Beis Hamikdash. Because of me, indirectly, the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. Indeed, maybe I will go to Gehenna. Because of me, I was the one, I am the one who carries the blame, the guilt. And some of you know what Jewish guilt can be like, especially in the women's section. I am the one who carries the Jewish guilt for the destruction of the Jewish people. Of course I will go to Gehenna. And then moments later he said, make a seat for Chizkiah Melech Yehuda. Chizkiah Melech Yehuda in history is the one who watched Sancheriv come and exile ten tribes of Israel. And they're gone. They're gone till today. 150 years before the destruction of the first base Amikdash, the ten tribes were exiled and assimilated. And it's one of the incredible things in Jewish history that in 150 years the majority of the Jewish people got lost and we still don't know where they are and who they are, even though every few Sundays another theory emerges. And Chizkiah was next. Sancheriv came to conquer Yehuda. And Shavna told Chizkiah, surrender, there's no hope. Surrender, Sancheriv is the man. Give in, acquiesce. But Chizkiah did not. And that famous plague that killed 180,000 troops of Sancheriv the first night of Pesach, as the Tanakh records, saved Yerushalayim, physically saved Yerushalayim. And now it was Chizkiah from all people 
who came back to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and said, I'm here to escort you, Rabbi Yochanan. You're not guilty for the destruction of Yerushalayim. You're the one who was responsible ultimately for saving Yerushalayim. Because as long as those sands of Yavna will be put into that oven of Knesset Yisrael, that oven will remain vibrant, alive in its dreams, in its memories, in its love, in its passion, in its faith, in its Torah, and in its mitzvahs. Nothing will vanquish it and destroy it. But Rabbi Yechenon asked for another two things. He asked for a doctor for Rabbi Tzaddik and the chain of Rabbi Gamliel. Because he understood Yavna is powerful. It's powerful in a way that Vespasian will not notice its power. But for the lifeboat to survive, and for the lifeboat to be able to carry the people through a turbulent sea until they can come to their destination, they have to remember very clearly where they come from. So we had the dynasty of Remgamliel, which reminds them about their leaders and their kings all the way back to David HaMelech and Yehuda. And gets the doctor for Ibtzadik, because people who cry for something 40 years don't forget it so fast. Ibtzadik... And his prayers won't allow them to forget a Beis Hamikdash and a Yerushalayim. With Reb Gamliel's dynasty alive, and Reb Tzaddik amongst them, this is not just a substitute for the old. This is a continuum of the old through Yavne V'chachameh. So Chizkiah comes there and says, you didn't sacrifice Yerushalayim, you saved Yerushalayim. You Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. No, Gehenim is not your place. Ganeidin is your place. Because if 2,000 years later, 6.7 million Jews today, Ken Yirbu, live in Eretz Yisrael and speak the language they spoke during the time of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. I assume if anybody from present-day Iran meets somebody from the Persian Empire who lived 2,400 years ago, and you put them together in a room, somebody from today's Iran and somebody from the Persian Empire of Cyrus. And you put them together in a room. Unless they both have iPhones, and one of them don't, because 2,500 years ago they didn't have it, if I'm not mistaken. They won't have anything to talk about. And you put somebody today from Egypt with somebody from the ancient Egyptian Empire from 3,500 years ago, I don't know if they'll have anything to talk about. But you take any Jew, you put him in one room, with a Jew who lived 2,000 years ago, they'll have a hundred things to argue about. Including the Tanrachnai. Especially if one of them learned, if both of them learned Mishnayas. If after 2,000 years, millions of Jews can live today in Eretz Yisrael and live as Jews in Eretz Yisrael, on different levels and different categories with all the debates, how did it happen? It only happened because in Yavna, they never stopped talking about Kedushas Mechitzes and Kedushas Harabayis and Noiser, and Shmiris HaKoyanim, and Lishmoi v'Lishma, and Halachis of Karbonis, and Zrika Saddam, Lamaila, and Lamata, and Chut HaSikra, and Chata Shanishchat Lishmoi, or Shaloi Lishmoi, Limnuyov, Shaloi Limnuyov, the Pesach. The reality of the Beis HaMikdash of Yerushalayim remained so vibrant in Jewish words, in Jewish life. A Jew came home, from a hard day of work in Poland, in Galicia, in Hungary, in Ukraine, in Lithuania, 
in Russia, in Western Europe, and opened up a Chumash, or a Mishnayis, or any other Sefer of Torah, Gemara, and suddenly he or she was spiritually in Yavna, which means they were spiritually in Yerushalayim, in the Beis Hamikdash. Civilization wasn't over. It lived, but it lived in a different way. They didn't have sovereignty, they didn't have an army, they didn't have a country. But it lived in words, and it lived in ideas, and it lived in passion, and it lived in prayer, and it lived in learning, and it lived in actions, and it lived in mitzvahs, and it lived in rituals, and it lived in yeshivas, and it lived in education. So Reb Nassim meets Anavi, and he says, what did Hashem do when Reb Yeshua disagreed with the heavenly voice? He said, Hashem started to laugh, and said, Nitzchuni bonai, Nitzchuni bonai, my children were victorious over me. My children were victorious over me. They created something to take such a dark moment and transform it into a catalyst and a springboard for eternity. This is something absolutely unique. There's a trajectory of how history works. Their civilization came to an end. But when they stood up and said, We are going to recreate everything on the sands of Yavne, and the oven will continue to pulsate, heat, life, warmth, and passion. It won't be a cheres hanishbar. It will be Adam, Adame, Le'elyoi, not only Adam, Min Adama. Nitzchuni bonai. Maritzchiyu says in the Gemara, the word Nitzchuni doesn't only mean victory, it comes from the word eternity. Netzach. Nitzchiyus. Like you say, Netzach Selavod, the Gemara says in Erevin means eternal. The word Netzach, we say in the Gdusha, for eternity. Nitzchuni, Bonai Nitzchuni, says the Maritzchius. They took the Torah, they took me, and they turned me into something eternal, into something Nitzchiusdik. Why? Without that moment, any charlatan in history, and there have been many, came up and declared that they heard voices from heaven, and maybe they did. Or they showed miracles, fictional or reality, to prove that you have to uproot Torah. But at that moment, Nitzchuni, says the Maritzchius. They turned the Torah into something Nitzchiusdik. They turned me into Netzach, eternity. Nothing can vanquish it. Nothing can eliminate it. Nothing can destroy it. Nothing can compromise it. Over thousands of years, the immune system of Yiddishkeit is so powerful. Why? Nitzchuni bonai. From the loy bashamayimi. Loy bashamayimi made the Rebbeinu Shalom through Moshe gave a mechanism. How you know what is Torah, what is not Torah. It follows that mechanism that's articulated in Torah. Loy bashamayimi achirei rabim lahatois. And in that way, its eternity is guaranteed. And thus, the eternity of the Jewish people is guaranteed. Because ha, bahatalia, one depends on the other. So, nitzchuni, bonai nitzchuni, they made me eternal. They made Torah eternal. And in that process, they also make themselves eternal. Nitzchuni, bonai nitzchuni. And I would just add, maybe on a spiritual, mystical note, The debate has profound ramifications for human beings 
in that generation and in all generations, including today's generation. There was a writer who once said, life breaks all people. Okay, not all. Many. And then some people know how to live in broken places better than others. Marshal kecheres hanishbar. Life breaks people. Clay Harris, the oven breaks. What happens? Rebeliezer says, Yomari says, was mitalmide beishamai. Beishamai shamutiyu. Shamutiyu, Rebeliezer. He was the students of Beishamai. So Toysfus and Shabbos and Beitzah. Beishamai says in Chagige, heaven was created before earth. Beishillel says, earth was created before heaven. Eretz kadmula shamayim. Big argument. Rebeleza followed Beishamai, the others followed Beishillel. The argument goes back to Medrash Rabbah, Parsha Bereshis Rabbah, Parsha Ches, Omer Reb Simen. Reb Simen said when Hashem wanted to create the world, there was a huge fight. What was the fight? Truth on one side. Chesed on the other side. Kindness said, create the human being. People are kind. At least some. Truth said, don't create the human being because everybody is always lying. The human being is full of lies. What did Hashem do? He took earth, he hurled it into the ground. Truth grows from the earth. Why is it? Because it's tif bagrabin in the earth. It's deep buried in, it's buried deep in the earth. So it has to grow from the earth. Why? Because God took emes and he threw it into the earth. What's the meaning of that? That's a great way of handling a debate, right? You have an opinion. Somebody else has another opinion. Why don't you take them and throw them under the earth? I, of course I won the debate. <laughs> what, ex- what type of explanation is that? There's a powerful explanation of the Balatanya. And he says as follows. There's two versions of truth. There's heavenly truth and there's earthly truth. What happens when you take something and you throw it to the ground? It usually shatters. It breaks into pieces. Take a piece of glass, take a piece of earthenware, and throw it hard to the ground. It will shatter into pieces. There's truth of heaven and there's truth on earth. Truth of heaven is uniform. Truth of heaven is absolute. Truth of heaven is holistic. Truth of heaven is objective. And then there's truth on earth. Truth on earth is very, very different. We all have a little piece of it. Nobody has all of it. Together we can recreate it. Truth in heaven is very strong and powerful. Truth on earth is vulnerable. Truth in heaven means truth that's absolute, non-negotiable. Truth on earth is, this is my experience. You may have a different experience. Whose experience is right? If you're married, whose experience is right? If you're single, whose experience is right? Somebody sent me a clip the other day. There was a wise man, and he said to his wife, nothing, because he was a wise man. Truth in heaven can be absolute. Truth on earth is broken. I don't have the full perspective of reality, do you? I don't have the full vision of reality, do you? 
When I listen to somebody, I don't know everything about them. Do you? We're tempted to think we know and therefore we judge, we condemn pretty swiftly. But that's Sheker. Shin Kufresh are all letters that right, they exist right near each other. Because my vision is so narrow. MS, Aleph is the beginning, Mem is the middle, Tuf is the end. Because truth needs a full holistic perspective. Can you see the beginning? Can you see the middle? Can you see the end? If not, be humble. Be very humble. Truth in heaven says, don't create the human being. People lie. By definition, they lie. Not al emes Hashem said, you have to appreciate the earth. The earth is truth. Earth truth comes from brokenness. Comes from failure. Comes from stumbling blocks. It comes from taking your brokenness and using it as a springboard for renewal, for tshuva, for healing. It's choil, it's earth. It's mundane. Yes, I'm a cheres hanishbar. And then I take the choil, the earth. I take the stuff from which I was created. And I fill in the gaps. And I try to create an oven out of it. You create a keli. Rebbe Eliezer, heaven wins. Blessed, hey, this is garnished. <laughs> this is a joke. This is a mockery. There's no value here. It's tummy. Rebbe Eliezer indeed was a soul of heaven. But the sages disagreed. They said, Rebbe Eliezer, you know, for you the world is a heavenly place. Carob trees move. Aqueducts of water move in the opposite direction. Walls tilt and fall. Even heaven speaks on your behalf. The truth that we come to, that we aspire to, is the truth of the human experience. It's the truth of human vulnerability. It's the truth of a human being aspiring. Through the choil. Kodesh is heaven, aloof. Choil is earth, sand. In Yavne, Yavne, they created this reality that everybody said was destroyed. How do you call a carob tree in Hebrew? Charuv. What does charuv mean? Destroyed. Churban. Charuv. Rebelezer said, look at the carob tree and you'll see there was a churban, there was destruction. But the Chachamim said, no. We created something called Yavna. And what are the letters of Yavna? Yibona. The opposite of Chruv. Chruv is Churban. And Yavna is Yibona. Yibona Amikdosh. Rabbi Yechina ben Zakkai said. Meheira Yibona Amikdosh. Yibona is the same letters like Yavna. Churban is the beginning, the invitation to rebuild. We could rebuild. We rebuild with our sand, but we rebuild. That MS is very powerful. It's very deep. It's very genuine. It means when you wake up in the morning and you feel you're tormented, you're shattered, you're fragmented, you're broken, you look like the carob tree, and you can't even stay in one place. Like the carob tree, you're uprooted. The Amasamaim, you can't even go in one direction. Now you're going in the opposite direction. You thought you had stability and suddenly your walls are falling on you. They're caving in. And at that moment, you want to surrender to depression. You want to surrender to despair. You want to surrender at least to cynicism, to melancholy. Omad Rabbi Yeshua Raglov. Rabbi Yeshua stands up on his legs. 
Even the heavenly voices seem to agree with Rabbi Eliezer. The story has come to an end. Omar, Rabbi Yeshua of Omar, Torah loy bashemaimi, ein mashgichin bebaskoil, shekvar nitna Torah mehar Sinai. There was a gift given at Har Sinai that the human being, the Adam, Adam, Eliezer, and Adam, Yisoyde may offer. He or she, in the depth of your own identity, lay chelik elikami mal, yofe koyechaben, mikoyechaav. The Gemara says in Shavuos. The power of the child is sometimes deeper than the power of the father. And as the great masters say, yofe koyechaben is also mikoyechaav. That itself comes from the father. And yet it brings out in the father something that the father himself was unaware of. That's this Gemara, the Rebbeinu Shalom says, mitzchuni bonai. Where did they get Torah from Hashem? And yet we bring out The child brings out something in the father that the father himself doesn't bring out in a revealed way. Which is why the month is called not of Menachem, but Menachem of. Of Menachem literally means the father comforts. What does Menachem of mean? You comfort the father. There's something about a child who has the ability to comfort the father, to comfort the mother. God is light. God is Ur. God is eternity. And then God allows the Jewish people to be plunged into a place of brokenness and darkness. There's no light anymore. There's no hope anymore. The era is over. Come the Jewish people. The peace of Hashem that was sent into darkness, and they say, We will show you that transformation is not only capable, but it's the truth. We bring out a deeper truth that transforms the darkness into light, the despair into hope, the eclipse into luminescence, and the night into day. And Hashem says, Ah, Nitzchuni Bonai Nitzchuni. And if I think back now, I think you might agree with me that if those people sitting in the base Medrash in Yavna, watching the carob tree being uprooted, watching the aqueduct of water flowing in the wrong direction, watching the walls tilt, and hearing a voice that says, Rebelezer is right. If those sages, those few individuals sitting there in the base Medrash, 1,000... 920 or 30 years ago, I don't know the exact date, in the vineyard of Yavna. And they would look today at the lifeboat. At the lifeboat that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai created in Yavna, Yibona, what would they say? That group of people, Chachmei Kerem Yavna, would look at the lifeboat today, and I can assure you that just like God was smiling they too would be quelling and they would say, Ah! Nitzchuni, bonai nitzchuni. Almost two millennia later, through thick and thin times, with persecutions unprecedented, unprecedented in the annals of human and Jewish history, the Chruv was turned into Yavna. The Jewish people not only survived, but thrive. And despite the perils all around us, and despite the dangers all around us, and despite the doubts, the questions, the dilemmas, the challenges, the fact remains that 2,000 years later, 
Knesset Yisrael not only lives, but Knesset Yisrael grows, Knesset Yisrael dreams, Knesset Yisrael builds, Knesset Yisrael loves, Knesset Yisrael believes, and Knesset Yisrael is united as ever, with ever-increasing and everlasting strength, deeply connected to Torah, deeply connected to mitzvahs, deeply connected to Yavna, Yerushalayim, and the Beis HaMikdash. Just in a few hours from now, I was given the honor in the Baal Shem Tov Shul, not far from here, to put in some stones that were brought over last week from the one bunker that they discovered in the Warsaw Ghetto. If you ever visit Warsaw now, you'll see the Germans got rid of the ghetto completely. But they discovered a few weeks ago the bunker of Mardechai on Levitz, who was one of the people who arranged the Warsaw Ghetto uprising in April 1943, the first night of Pesach. In the bunker they found tefillin, just now. And they found other Sephardim of Torah. A few bricks from that bunker were brought over here to Muncie. Together with bricks from Shul's and another 15 shuls in Poland that were burned, destroyed, and the entire community massacred. And three Holocaust survivors, ages 199 and 101, are going to put in the stones. And he reminded me, the Marsha says, it says in Meseches Megillah, Tav Choftes, Rabbi Yochanan said, that all the shuls and the Batei Medrashas of the diaspora are going to be moved over to Eretz Yisrael. So the Marsha says, and they're all going to be attached to the Beis HaMikdash. They're all going to be extensions of the Beis HaMikdash Ashlishi. I guess that's why there'll be place. So those who are worried you're going to lose your seat in shul, and for some Jews that can be a serious thing. So with this shul it's not a problem, because you're anyway losing your seats every few days, because buildings go up, buildings come down, tents go up, tents go down. So you never know what's happening. So it keeps everybody safe. But there are other shuls where you have a seat for 29 years. And I, dear the Jew who sits down on your seat. Especially Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So the Marsha says, don't worry about it. You're going to have your comfortable seat. It's going to be an extension of the Beis Hamikdash. Let's hope it doesn't go too far in the outskirts of Yerushalayim. So everything will be fine. So as these bricks come over from those places to shuls here in America, those shuls, Bekar of Mamash, will become, become extensions of the Beis Hamikdash Hashlishi. Now here is a letter. <laughs> the founder of the Baal Shem Tev, Rabbi David Lichtenstein, sent me a letter that he got from a Jew in the Warsaw Ghetto. And he sent it to me. I take a look. I happen to know that Jew very well. His name was Dr. Hillel Zeidman. Hillel Zeidman was an old Yiddish writer. And I knew him. You remember Hillel Zeidman? Allah <laughs> shalom. So he sent me a letter that Zeidman wrote in the ghetto. If I would have the schus to take a few of these bricks and bring them over to Eretz Yisrael. That's what he hoped for in the early 40s. He was saved. Most of the Jews of Warsaw were killed. I think he has a son who lives here in Muncie, actually. He's here? Huh? Shema Milso. Okay. So these bricks are coming over now. But it's, bricks are bricks. They're significant. But it represents something very powerful. 
It represents that that which is made from the chol, from the sand, that which is made from mortar, that which is made from mud, that which is made from earth, the Jewish people managed to hold it alive and to resurrect it and to make sure that eternity is guaranteed until the great moment when the Sanhedrin and Yavna and Usha and Tveria and Sipoiri and all the ten places that go to Sanhedrin and the lifeboat will be restored to the real source of sustenance, to the ultimate place of Knesset Yisrael and Klal Yisrael. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.